suddenly occlusion becomes more simple. You have to work less hard because all you've got to do is make sure there's good posterior guides. And all that work you're doing at the front of the mouth, as long as you don't get a, too much of a clash there, okay, then life becomes much, much more simple. And you can, canine guidance isn't a bad thing, but it's not essential to a healthy functional bite. Mm -hmm. okay. but Andy, most specialists would call that, you know, if, if you say to a specialist, well, in this case, we can um, accept the, the degree of class two in this case, they would then say, okay, so you're going for a compromised treatment plan. And right. that, that term then makes you, it almost undermines your entire thought process and what you're, right. what you're trying to do for the patient. Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, the forward-thinking podcast for dental professionals. Join us as we discuss hot topics in dentistry, clinical tips, continuing education, and adding value to your life and career. With your host, Jazz Gulati. Hey guys, and welcome to episode 32. This is Posterior Guided Occlusion Part 2 with Dr. Andy Toy. Now, I left you on a massive, massive cliffhanger last time, uh, and I hope you can join us again to get the complete story of how to actually apply the PGO concepts. Now, something like, like I told you guys, it was me learning a bit about this concept for the first time, like many of you. So it might take me some time to implement this if I do end up fully going that way, but it's, it's just great to hear other points of views and other theories out there. So I'm so glad that Andy, Dr. Andy Choi was able to share that all with us. Before we join Dr. Andy Choi on the show again with part two, uh, I'm going to give you the Petrusa Dental Pearl. And this is a photography one, which has been quite big on my Instagram story recently. Uh, I, I sort of gave a hint that I've uh, invested in some new sort of photography flashes, some lighting. Uh, and I'm going to go into a lot of detail about that because loads of people inquired about how to get that nice, softer lighting. So I'm going to do a whole segment on that. I think it'll be cool for everyone. And also how I can do it for way cheaper than buying it from some other places. So I'm going to show you the sort of the DIY method of how to make the softer lighting and save you lots of money at the same time. A dental photography tip for the protrusive dental pearl for today, which is when you're taking your portrait photo, which is important to do, and I think with more experience, you realize the importance of it uh, as you go on. And if anyone's doing orthodontics, you're probably used to taking portrait photos anyway. So when you're taking portrait photos, especially with a ring flash, which is the most common flash that people have for dental photography, the lighting can be quite harsh. So if you can uh, just very simply unclip the ring flash from the lens, and point it up towards the ceiling. Now, most people have like a white ceiling. Point it up to the ceiling, and this will really enhance your portrait photograph. It will make it much more softer lighting, and it'll enhance the features. Uh, so that'll be my Petrusa Dental Pearl. Point the flash to the ceiling, not directly at your patient. The other two things I want to tell you is that uh, I've added one more book to my book list, which is protrusive.co.uk forward slash books. And this is The Danish Way of Parenting. Again, if you're already following me on Instagram, you would have heard me uh, on my story talking about the lessons I learned from this book uh, as a father and how um, Danish people are the happiest in the world. And I think it's because they have a really happy upbringing. So what lessons can we learn? So uh, I recommended that as a book on my sort of book list. Uh, and the last thing I want to talk about before we jump straight to the podcast is for those of you who missed my butterfly effect webinar that I did for the deanery, uh, that's now online and you can catch that on protrusive.co.uk forward slash butterfly. And this is about 
a little bit of my story about how I always wanted to be a restorative consultant, how that was my real focus. Uh, but then, you know, life happens, life comes in the way and how I've navigated my career path uh, and how I do believe that little things, small influences compounded over time can change the trajectory of your career. So it's all about the butterfly effect, the little changes and how they may uh, result in big changes in your future. So check out that free webinar online on protrusive.co.uk forward slash butterfly and let's jump straight to Andy Toys part two with PGO. Hope you enjoy. Angles and Andrews and it go continues on from there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's part of the structural school of mm. orthodontics. Okay. Yeah. What I would say. And so when I try and make a, a difference for people, I say, well, you either, you know, this is a structural way of looking at it. We have a functional way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. Okay, but Andy, most specialists would call that. You know, if if you say to a specialist, well, in this case, we can um, accept the the degree of class two. In this case, they would then say, okay, so you're going for a compromised treatment plan. Right. That, that term then makes you it almost undermine your entire thought process and what you're right. what you're trying to do for the patient. Right, and so we have the evidence to show that the compromise, so called, is actually the best way of treating this patient. Because I'm going to give you now, probably because we've been going on a bit, but I'm going to give you what I think is the killer piece of evidence. Okay. So Ron Presswood is busy working through all this stuff. I, I tell you part of the story here that really got him onto this was mm -hmm. he's at a party and uh, a patient of his comes up to him and, and says to him, Ron, my son has just been to the LVI, the Las Vegas Institute. He's had his mouth restored. He's in terrible, terrible pain. Okay. And uh, can you do something? So Ron basically goes, goes to see, takes the guy to his practice that evening. And in the LVI, I don't know what they do now, to be honest, because I don't really look at them. But what they used to do in those, in those days was they would fit all these uh, muscle monitors on there. They'd get you to the so-called point of neutrality or whatever they, it they is. They still do that. I've seen it firsthand in practice. Okay. And they... <laughs> In, invariably then you had to open up the bike by six or seven millimeters and you needed needed 28 units of crown and bridge okay 34, oh, 34. <laughs> and what they'd done with this guy they'd opened him up and they'd locked him into this position he was in terrible pain so what ron had to do was basically grind away all these this porcelain <clears throat> and free him up okay and Ron is like incandescent at this point because he knew this lad. He'd been a patient of his because he's part of the family. And his mouth has been wrecked because people are following this model of occlusion uh, that the LVI were, were purporting at the time with so-called evidence that we never see. But he says, well, I've got this other idea, but I haven't got the evidence. How can I go out there and say you're wrong when I... It's just my opinion. So that really what set him on the road to really, really work on the evidence. So he, he went over to Australia to work with the anthropologists over there, went there three or four times. The anthropologists in Australia got masses of evidence, but they're not, they're academics, they're not clinicians. So it doesn't really flip over into how we translate their evidence into practice, okay? Anyway, he's talking about this with his son, um, uh, Ron Jr. Ron Jr., uh, is an engineer. In fact, he's a space engineer because he worked at, for NASA. Ron's from Texas. He lives in Houston. Mm. So he's saying to Ron Senior, saying to Ron Junior, he says, "Well, you know what? There's this relationship between the way the condyle works, 
and moves and the way the teeth glide over each other, okay? And Ron Jr. says, well, if that's true, then we should be able to find the maths that describes that. So, um, and Ron Jr. had been working on, actually, at that point, the docking mechanism for the, for the um, space station modules, okay? Which is a bit like a cusp going into a fossil, if you think about <laughs> it. And through space, these two bodies are moving, okay? And they've got to, they've got to understand how they're going to join up together. And there's a mathematical relationship for that. So they go off to the University of Texas. They get um, 12 skulls from the anthropological department. And if Ron's supposition is correct, then the, the occlusal surfaces of the uh, second molars and the functional surface of the joint, mm -hmm. okay, which is Zola's tubercle, and, and actually they looked at the canine on the opposite side. If if they are have a relationship, then you should be able to find the mathemat mathematical relationship, uh, mathematical equation that describes that. Because mm -hmm. Ron's idea was that as the condyle moves, you know, when you try when you're chewing and everything, all that is in contact as well, and you may well have a contact over on the canine as well. Everything is in harmony. Okay. So they take twelve skulls. They have to build an extra powerful computer in them days. And they did a, a digital scanning of those three points. They gave it to a friend of Ron Jr.'s, who was Ed Henkel. He's another NASA space engineer. And uh, he basically did the scans. And they found the equation that links the functional surfaces of the joint to the functional surfaces of the teeth. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't care about what your science is, but when you put an equation in there, that, it to me, is proof that you should have a posterior guide that it matches the condyl, condyl motion of the uh, in the joint. Mm -hmm. So we have the equation that proves this. One of the frustrations for me is I can't. But I, we have gone to the articulator manufacturers, okay, especially the digital guys, and we're saying, do you know what, guys? If you you gave us a CBCT, and we found two of the points. We can map all the other points because we have the occasion, yeah. the, the equation that does right. that. And mm -hmm. it's nonlinear maths. And the guys, Ed Enkel said, and I, he did all different skull sizes. He said, 12 is enough. This, you know, there's enough uh, synchronicity here that everything comes together. So we talk about evidence. I've not seen any other um, model of occlusion come up with significant evidence like that. Never mind our own clinical experience that we mm -hmm. get, just as you're describing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, going for a um, the patient's present occlusion, okay, the occlusion they walk walk in with, providing that the joint is healthy and uh, they can chew everything and they're not in discomfort. I think we are obliged to keep to that occlusion whenever we can. So it's not a compromise. That's really fascinating. I mean, when you told me that story the first time, um, and then when I read your ebook and I looked into it and I saw the, the skulls uh, and, I, and I learned what a centrum was, because I have to admit, I, it's not something, you know, the spoons and stuff. So it, it is, it's certainly very, very interesting. Um, and the fact that you have, you know, 
your comparison of the evidence that you present against what the occlusion world presents at the moment, I totally get it. Because one thing that I was always taught by my, by my mentor and uh, principal, Hap Gill, who you know is a fellow uh, a, a panky, uh, panky guy like yourself. Uh, and he always told me, look, Jazz, all this, all this occlusion stuff, there's actually, you have to firstly respect there's no evidence for this stuff. So uh, yeah. I, that's why I was also very open to um, what you had to say, because yeah. um, I, I know yeah. that the evidence for a lot of what we apply um, doesn't exist. Yeah. So always, as good clinicians, right, I know HAPS like this as well, you have to take all this in, just like I did as well, and you're going to try it out on your own mm-hmm. patient. Mm-hmm. And when you try it out with splints, then it's in a reversible manner. And I know how, and, you know, you were seeing how actually what you see is suddenly occlusion becomes more simple. You have to work less hard because all you've got to do is make sure there's good posterior guides. And all that work you're doing at the front of the mouth, as long as you don't get a, too much of a clash there, okay, then life becomes much, much more simple. And you can, canine guidance isn't a bad thing, but it's not essential to a healthy functional bite. So that makes life a lot simpler. So good occlusion is really very simple, which is bad for me in one way, because if I made it really complicated, you could pay me a lot of money to come and give you five days. Your, your, on, your, your you know, textbook would be, would be one page, because literally the last minute of what you said there is essentially the crux of it. So I'm, I think my opening snippet to the podcast episode will be exactly that 45 second, what you said there. So um, is this a good time to now for me to then uh, ask you some questions, which Please. a lot of people might be yeah. thinking at the moment uh, yeah. out there listening to this, people who've never come across PGO. I mean, I think I will try it out on splints uh, and go from there. But it's it's interesting. We, we you know we we mentioned about Habgill and one of my uh, first experiences uh, is when he gave me the job offer to, to work with him, uh, and I went to shadow him a few times. So he was just finishing up an Invisalign case, uh, and uh, he you know removed the attachments, and now he's checking the bite. And okay, right, okay, I know what he's going to be doing here. I'll watch. So he's checking the bite, and the, the, it's a young female, and she's now uh, excursing left and right. And you're a very long way away from canine guidance. There is no canine guidance at all. And I saw him do his thing, bit of adjustments, check. Okay, everything feels smooth, good. Okay, fine. Uh, we'll talk, talks about retention and, and, and the patient goes away. Uh, and me, you know, I, I respect Hap very much, in, even now, of course, more than ever, uh, as our relationship has grown over the years. But I, I said to him very sheepishly, like, um, Hap, what, what about canine guidance? Aren't you, aren't, aren't you worried there was no canine guidance? And he said to me, whoever taught you all that rubbish, <laughs> just forget it, you know. <laughs> um, there's no evidence for that stuff. And that's what really got me thinking. Uh, you know, I was already um, very much into collusion. And, and yes. I've been more and more, and I love... I love respecting and listening to all the schools of thought. So thank you so much for sharing the, the origins of PGO, the origins of the structural uh, viewpoint uh, of occlusion, which is important to know that actually it may have started from a dream in 1884. Yeah. Very fascinating to learn that. So now let's talk about real world and how to apply it and, and some of the questions that uh, we have. So the first question I have is about definitions, right? Okay. Function for me is uh, in my map of the world uh, at the moment is a function is or masticatory oral function is speech, swallowing and chewing. That for me is function. So in, in speech, 
Yeah, speech, yeah, speech, uh, yeah. speech chew, chew, chewing, yeah. um, uh, and swallowing. Yeah, of course. So, in swallowing, yes, that we need we need a contact like MIP or whatever, so to to, to be able to swallow. So there's contact during swallowing. There is no contact during speech, unless you're uh, there's some degree of power function going on in that sense. Uh, and chewing, there are some fleeting contacts, but from what I understand, there shouldn't be any hard or significant contacts while we're chewing. Otherwise, it's a lot like when you're walking up the stairs and you miss a step and suddenly you feel yeah. a thud. You'd, you'd feel yeah. a lot of that. So yeah. when I was reading your ebook and I was reading uh, the, the slide you very kindly sent me over while I was in the last couple of days, there's a lot of, um, and the way you mentioned it was about, okay, or the functional movements. But you see, in, in my map of the world, that doesn't fit into the the functional movements because because it doesn't fit into the, what I just said there. So what do you mean by these functional movements? And, and when you go into the high the, in a high force and you and you grind back to the middle, that shouldn't happen in normal function in chewing is, is, is what my belief is. Yeah. So the there's two aspects to that. Firstly, you do get these fleeting movements, uh, uh, fleeting contacts. Mm. OK. And this, so you want to make sure that there's not a tooth that's in the way. So that's where the freedom thing comes in. But there's another important thing, and that is something called the healthy clench. Mm -hmm. the, the, the body needs a chance to fire up those muscles without the teeth being in the way and the condyle seated properly. So the, the purpose of the splint is to enable those muscles to fire and to have the healthy clench. So there is a time, and I don't know, I'll be honest with you, I don't know how much it is. People might have done research on it is, but there is a, so many times in the day when you do need to clench and be able to move around a little bit. Are you enjoying the Protrusive Dental Podcast? Well, allow me to deliver you even more value. You can now download the iOS or Play Store app for free. Just search Protrusive on your app platform. Now, if you're a true Protrusive and you want to support the podcast, you want to claim CPD for all the listening and watching that you do, you want to get access to exclusive clinical walkthrough videos to make dentistry tangible, as well as a premium newsletter, access to the Protrusive Vault, and the ability to download all the clinical videos and podcast videos so you can view them offline later, you can get all of that for less than 15 tax-deductible dollars per month. So what are you waiting for? Download the Protrusive app now on iOS or Android for absolutely nothing. We worked so hard on this Protrusive team, and I know you're just going to love it. Now back to the main episode. Now, I've had an interesting experience of myself. This is a research study of one, okay? Because I had my Invisalign done. I wear my Rivera retainers. And I can tell you, and this wasn't a name of treatment, but I went from about 35 millimeters opening with a deviation to one side. By the time nowadays, I got 40, 45 millimeters opening, no deviation, no clicks. Okay, mm -hmm. oh, a slight one here. Right? <laughs> when I take my Viveras out in the morning, I can't feel my back teeth touching. Okay. Now then. I was just waiting for, you know, my mouth and my head to explode because I didn't get my back teeth touching. They generally come back during the day. One of the things I realized is actually your, your bite changes throughout the day. Mm -hmm. And I go back to my osteopathic and chiropractic friends and they're saying, well, it's all about where's your jaw, jaw posture and muscles change and fluid balance change and things like that. So one of the things about a functional approach is you don't get too hung up about the actual contact, but you do want good function. And what I think happens is when my 
Viveras are in during the night. I'm doing a bit of clenching. This is really toned up the muscles here. The function's really improved. And the fact that I can chew without my back teeth actually touching, because I can chew everything all day, no problem. And and so it's that it must be that at night I'm just going to the gym a little bit and I've got a nice posterior guided occlusion, good contact in the centrums, and everything's fine. So I think that there is a a certain amount of time during the day or night during during the 24-hour period when the patient should be able to get into that centrum, that little spoon thing there, and just grind around a little bit. So we call it the healthy clench. And this is one of the other things that, you know, your average approach to occlusion says you must stop clenching and grinding's bad and stuff like that. So can I tell you just one little bit about bruxism then? Please, well? please. This, this is exactly what I want to do. I want to stimulate debate about bruxism, parafunction, because right. you were hitting all the right points, you know. I come from a background where parafunction is bad, the teeth shouldn't touch, it is essentially the, the background coming. And then what you're telling me now, and it makes sense because... To be fair, and I spoke about it with the episode with Barry Alton, Barry Glassman, is that we're all complaining nowadays that so many of our patients are parafunctioning. And sometimes I think, hang on a minute, maybe that should be the norm. Because if yeah. 90% of our patients are parafunctioning, maybe it's the 10% who aren't that are the abnormal. Yeah. So, so for instance, all right, so, okay, so a certain amount of wear is normal. That's one of the things. Now, I, we, we don't get this in the UK so much, but in the US... You know, if you had, I don't know, you lost like a millimeter of enamel or something, that's a reason to restore the tooth because it's not looking like a virginal tooth, right? And if they can yeah. crown it, they'll do it. That Well, that's the way they are. And I, I'm sorry, I'm guys, to listen in the States, but it's kind of true. I, I, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, well, I'm talking about the 80s, 90s, you know, go to Panky, see some fantastic dentists and doing brilliant preps. And yeah. this is the way we thought, you know, every tooth must have that cusp to fossey relationship and all that sort of stuff. If you look at the anthropological evidence, you'll see that teeth are designed to wear. So somewhere is normal. And if you think about what is equilibration, it's really just advancing the wear a little bit that we should have had if we were on a proper natural diet. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that little bit of freedom to move around, that little bit of wear is is a good thing. So that's that's part of it. Um, Where was I going to? Uh, we were talking no, about Brox. Not. You mentioned Broxism. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. Now then, Ron, I, I had assumed that Broxism was something to do with up here, right? I was thinking it's not really anything to do with occlusion. People Brox, it's something to do with something that's going on, you know, mentally, emotionally, or whatever it is. And I start talking to Ron. He says, "I oh, actually, you know, I find that when we give them the posterior guided splint, the Broxism stops." Okay, and I think it's because they're bruxing because there's something that's in the way and they're trying to get rid of it. And as soon as we get rid of that noxious contact, and if you think about the way they adjust occlusions, mm-hmm. they'll say, is there anything that doesn't feel quite right? Feels like it's in the way? Just here. Shall I adjust it? Yes, please. Oh, that feels better. What you're doing with equilibration is just giving them some bit of freedom. Okay. So anyway we decided to do a study on this at Loughborough University. And um, we, we, we couldn't, this is interesting, we couldn't recruit a single student to this study because what we wanted to do is give them a, a canine-guided splint, mm-hmm. right, with sort of moderate steepness. They then had to wear that for 28 nights. Then they'd have a rest for 28 nights. 
and then we'd give them a posterior guided splint, so no anterior ramp. And just to mix it up a bit, they may start with a posterior guided splint and finish with a canine guided splint. Anyway, Steph Forrester goes to a lot, her lot of, uh, of students. Not one single student was willing to have any dental procedure done, even though it was a splint. So I had to recruit 12 FDs, right? Is it, is it because it's not sexy to wear a splint? Is, is that what it is? No, no, I don't know. But they were happy to have stuff put on their muscles, you know, and fighting different things, but they were not happy to go and have impressions and stuff like that. So I had to recruit 12 FDs and fair play, we got them in and we went through the study. We tried to show, um, we tried to do sort of uh, laser imaging of the splints to show the different wear patterns. It was a, it was a failure. Okay, we couldn't get decent data out of that. They did show, like we expected, that the, in the canine guided splint, you know, when you moved off to one side and the other, the muscles um, switched off. So we we could show that. But the the other thing that we did is we took photographs of the splints. So we then compared the wear patterns on the acrylic of the canine guided splints and the posterior guided splints. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because you can tell, you know, once they've worn a splint for 28 days, if they're grinding, you can see the effect of the, the occlusal contacts on there. Yep. You know what I mean? And we also asked them, we gave the, um, the subjects then a, a questionnaire to fill in about comfort and stuff like that. So there was no evidence of bruxism on the posterior guided splint. And on every canine guided splint, they'd been grinding up and down the ramp because you could mm-hmm. see the acrylic had been worn in because we compared the photographs of when we fitted it to when we looked at it after 28 days. And 11 of the 12 subjects reported better comfort with the posterior guided splint. And the other one was neutral. Mm-hmm. So... To me, it was strong evidence for Ron's assertion that if you will grind your teeth, if you don't have good centrums, good posterior guides, and you could well be grinding because you're trying to get rid of something. Yeah. Now I know that invariably now when I get sent a patient from a dentist to deal with their TMD, quite often they've had some anterior dentistry done in some way Mm -hmm. and they've restricted their path of motion. And so they've not got that contact at the, at the backs that they used to have, and they're starting to get problems, okay? So um, it's, it's usually the dentistry looks too good, mm-hmm. and it's too anatomical, and it's not functional enough. So that's one of the reasons, you know, we, we talk about in the, in the diploma, you know, overjet's your friend, basically. Build in two or three millimeters of overjet. Give them some freedom in centric as mm-hmm. a panky. So, so there you go. So... I know I wouldn't say hand on heart that every parafunctional situation, every bruxism is due to an inclusion issue, mm-hmm. but it's certainly significant. And I've and Ron being a panky dentist, he takes photographs of his patient splints year, year after year after year. And he's got photographs of people, you know, came in with massive parafunction. 20 years later, their splint looks just the same. No grinding. I respect that a lot. As, as someone who takes photos of my patient's splints, and I, you know, as many of my listeners know, I get a Sharpie pen, I color my splint in, and I can see the, the patterns. And to be fair, 80, 90% of the splint work I'm doing is anterior only, whether it's B-splint, FOSS, NTI. So this, this is why I'm, I'm, I'm excited to, 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 to be exposed to this type of um, uh, learning. But what you said there about um, 
how one might want to grind away that canine guidance because it's in the way. And I simply, I completely see that. But it's funny how in those lectures by, by the uh, quote unquote occlusion gurus, you, you see, you all seen that case where they say, oh, this patient, um, we need to restore them because they've now lost canine guidance and now they're uh, parafunctioning on their posterior teeth. This is really bad. The forces are high. And the very crux of occlusion is let's rebuild, let's anteriorize this occlusion. And it's just, so, so why is it, why do you think that we dentists, uh, yourself, even when you used to do Tanners and Michigans, how can you attribute the success that we can get from doing anterior dentistry? Okay, okay so what does, what does the Tanner appliance do? And, we, I'm, and I'm talking about a flat plane appliance, pretty flat here. That's the way that we were taught at Panky. Sure. I mean, it basically opens them up. Yep. Right, and allows them to move around a little bit. Mm -hmm. And when they clench, that posterior guide comes in. Okay. But I'm not checking for that because when I was doing the side to side, it was just glider movements. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't I, mean, I, I can see that. Movements. So mm -hmm. it's just back to Bayron's work in 64. Mm -hmm. So the point is, 100% of people have posterior guides. That's what we found on those dentists, even the mm -hmm. ones that have been equilibrated. Mm -hmm. Okay? so. The reason that the splint has worked is because we opened them up and we allowed them a bit of freedom and it's flattened it all, the whole thing off. And I don't, I'm not going to get into this right now, but there's been a bit of work done with the denture system that's come out of this. And this is where John Bill comes in, the denture technician. Um, when you open up, you know, with, de with dentures, you can op open up the vertical. Yeah. Okay. I'll tell you a little bit about it. You know, you know, I don't know if you make full dentures anymore. I, I've made one in I, years. I make about two or three a year. Okay. So, you know, a good full denture, on what basis is it made? Curves of Spay and Wilson? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's what we tend to follow. That's right. Now, what is the radius of the curves of Spay and Wilson? Radius, uh, I, I'm going to uh, say... It's based on uh, it's based on the work of four inches Bonwell's triangle, right? It's four inches, right? So they set up a denture occlusion based on Bonwell's work, and the denture occlusion is symmetrical, and it's you it's a linear movements, and you're putting it into a non-linear system. So John Bills is denture technician in Leicester. He's my denture technician. He's always trying to solve problems, and one day he comes to me. Because he, he was working with a dentist, and he was setting these dentures up in the most perfect occlusion that you could get them set up. He'd put them in the mouth, and he'd say, slide from side to side, and they're flipping all over the place. So he'd grind them down, grind them down, grind them down, until they stopped moving, okay? And he found it was steeper, the occlusional plane was steeper on one side and flatter on the other. Mm -hmm. It was asymmetrical. Yeah. So he comes to me, he says, Andy, you know about occlusion. I'm grinding them down like this from the perfect curves, and I find it steeper on one side, flatter on the other. Is that right? I said, you've got to meet Ron. Because Ron had found the same things on the dentate patients. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So as a result of that, with Ron Jr., they developed a whole new denture system called CQR, okay? And the occlusal planes of the dentures match the patient's own asymmetric condylar movements. And when you get that, you get absolutely stable dentures. And did I direct you to the site which showed the videos on that? Because no. we've got videos, we've got videos to show. You can 
Are you happy to, to, to uh, for the view, listeners and viewers of this uh, podcast to, uh, I'm, I'm sure you'd be happy to share the ebook, um, but yeah, yeah, you know, my listeners love downloads. So if you've got oh. any uh, videos, that sort of stuff, they will loyally uh, watch it because I'm sure well, you know people who listen to it are generally interested in power function, occlusion, different yes. concepts, dentistry and all. So. I get that because we're the same. And the thing about showing it on a denture is it's, you can immediately see instability, right? Mm-hmm. And the thing to get your head around is that occlusion on a denture, functional occlusion on a denture is the same as functional occlusion in the mouth on a dentate patient. And when it's unstable on a denture, when the, when the, when the occlusal planes are not in the right place, the denture moves. You can see it straight away. When it's in the mouth, you don't see the teeth moving. It's what's happening up here that you don't see as unstable. Or maybe yeah. there's some uh, fracture and forces on the teeth. Or maybe the, the, the periodontium's getting stressed. We can't see it. But you can see it in the denture. That's why I often show the denture videos mm-hmm. to help you understand what's happening in the dentate patient. Anyway, what John Bill understood then, when you start, we start to build these dentures with functional planes that match the patient, as you open up the vertical, the steepness of those curves changes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right? Because actually, you're on a different part of the condylar surface. Yep. So, yep. so what happens, so in his average sort of facial height, he said it's steeper on the right than the left. And we haven't found anybody yet who's the other way around. Okay. But as you open up the vertical, it becomes much flatter both sides. Mm. Mm. So what do we do when we put a splint in and put a flat plane splint in? We're basically creating that and we're allowing them to move around. And they can really then free up the muscles start working. And when they really clench, that little posterior guide comes in. Mm-hmm. That's why I think the splints work. Brilliant. And I that, that was a good answer. That was that was not like a politician at all. I asked the question, uh, why are they successful? And I think you've answered that in a different way. And it's, it's back to what we said earlier about a different way to explain the reason why we see success in, in what we do. And I, and, I, and I appreciate that. How are we doing for time, Andy? Because I've got so, some more questions. Are we doing okay? Yeah, for you? Far away. Far away. Fine. So yeah. uh, you mentioned about the muscles having a uh, the correct amount of function. The correct, I mean, the how is it that you worded it in terms of uh, the muscles being able to contract in a coordinated manner and yes. with enough volume, would you say? Or how would you? Yeah, volume of contraction, maximum yeah, okay. contraction. That's what the SEMG uh, measures. Um, sure. Well, what I what I do is uh, as part of every new patient examination uh, myself is I, I always palpate the muscles of examination and I make yeah. a note of uh, the degree of hypertrophy. And uh, I either have okay. I either quote say they are normal, what they feel to me, or if I feel a bit of a bulge, then I say, OK, they're mildly hypertrophic. And if I feel um, a, a bulge of the master, that's, let's say, more than three or four millimeters. You now I'm being like, you know, subjective here. Uh, and, you, you know, those patients, very square jaws, really severely hypertrophic masters. Well, are they all normal or is there at what point do you say, OK, this patient is, uh, you know, some you get these very thin, slender ladies in and they bite together. Is, are you biting together? Yeah, yes, I am. But you can't feel any contraction, whereas right. others you feel a massive bulge. So what is normal? Well, let's let's take it away from dentistry and look at the people walking down the street. OK, they're all walking perfectly happy, healthy, can do whatever they want. Some of them have got tiny little muscles. Some of them have got big muscles. To me, that's a structural point of view. Mm, you look mm-hmm. at things from a structural viewpoint, okay? I'm more about the function. So one of the things that I do 
and generally this is with TMD patients, you know, when the pen, and, and one of the reasons we've, we've not done research on patients in pain, because pain is complex. Yeah. Let's remember that pain is actually felt up here. So whilst they may feel it's their joint, their tooth, their neck, whatever it is, they may actually be nothing wrong with those. It's all up here. Could be that. So I need to sort of determine, is there an occlusal element to this patient's head and neck pain? So what I do is I get them to clench and I, I do my own SEMG, just like we did then. And I feel any movement. And I do it up here as well. Okay. I then put some cotton rolls in and I see if the volume changes because I'm more interested in the volume of movement and the coordination rather than the size of the muscle. So that's a functional point of view rather than a structural point of view. Sure. Yeah. Well, the, the reason why I'm so hung up on the size is because I, I do believe, and it's something I, I feel I do observe, is that for those who have larger muscles and are power functioning, they are destroying their teeth more. They're able to generate more loads. I'm getting more fractures of crowns, and I'm, I'm using zirconia instead of Emacs or gold in those patients. So it, it, it informs my dentistry and my uh, approach. These patients yeah. come back, and they're the ones who are breaking the splints, for example, because yeah. they have the strong muscles. So that, that's yeah. why um, I, I can sort of relate it to maybe not function, but to, to power function. Yeah. Okay. So, but what I would say was I'm more interested in the volume of movement rather than the size of the muscle. And, and it's, an, it's a useful tool as well, actually, because one of the things that we have to do, particularly with a pain patient, is we, we have to build trust with them. Okay. And I'm sure that the more they trust you, the more the pain goes away, frankly. That's part of it. But I say to them, I need to try and work out whether your bite makes a difference to your to the muscles. And if it does, it's possible that it's part of the problem that you have is problems with the muscles here and the joint not being stable. Okay. Mm -hmm. You tend to get pain from muscles that don't work rather than muscles that do work. Right. So just be aware of that as well. So, I, I do. I think I've observed that because people who've got these uh, hypertrophic muscles, their muscles are not tender. You know, I, I do palpate them and they, 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 right. they then sell them tender. Right. So, I mean, I've broken my arm in the past and I can tell you, you have to hold it still for like three or four weeks. I'm desperate to move those muscles and the muscles that hurt are the ones that you can't get um, get working. And there's good evidence to show, you know, um, a healthy muscle has good blood flow through it and the painful muscle doesn't. So that's all another thing. We want movement, we want function, okay? So I get the patient and I say, okay, you test, let's test you now. And I get them to put their hands on the temples because it's usually the temporalis that doesn't react. And I get them to bite together and they can feel maybe it goes beep, beep like this, okay? Or it's fluttering on one side, okay? And then I put the cotton rolls in and we see if it makes a difference. And often it's going whoop, whoop. And they go, oh, that made a difference. And my assumption is when the muscles do this, then they're going to be healthier, less pain, better function than when it's doing this. That well, makes sense. Right? Uh, okay. In someone who respects what physios do and like you said, osteopath and stuff, you know, that's a, the very much the functional matrix. The, I, I can see I can see that viewpoint. Right. So so that's what I'm testing on muscles. I do test for trigger points as well. And one of the things I would say to, I don't, I've never seen you test a muscle or work with a muscle, but one thing I've learned from the uh, physical medicine people, particularly the cranial osteopaths, is that, you know, we need to develop a real sense of a real 
light sense of touch in our fingers. We tend to use metal instruments, and I've seen dentists really squidging around here. Uh, particularly, that's particularly rough on a TMD patient. I just go in, I'm feeling the quality of the muscle in that, and you're sort of tuning in. And if you touch them and they feel pain, it's pain. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that it's all up in here, it's still pain. So, and I'm learned, I've learned a lot from Ron Presswood here. You know, Ron is in his mid 70s now. They've got lockdown in uh, Houston. Do you know what? He's still working. He's still working because he gets two or three um, referrals every every week from uh, local uh, psychiatrists and MDs and people like that with people in pain. And he's worked out, I can see these people on my own. And But you watch how he and his team handle uh, uh, somebody in extreme chronic facial pain. And you recognize there's a lot around the people management as well as what he's actually physically doing with them with any sort of splint. So, you know, this is why we never research people in pain because that is so complex. So You're complex, never going to get it. Mm-hmm. But, and you have to understand the nature of pain. But mm-hmm. there are, there is a connection between the occlusion and the function of the joint. And there is sure. a connection between the occlusion and the function of muscles. We know that. We've proven that. We've got the equation and we've got the data to show that. So that can affect people in terms of their pain as well. And remember, I'm coming from the 80s when, you know, good research was shown there's no connection between occlusion and, and headaches. Mm-hmm. Right? That was the best research that was out there. Well, they're wrong. There is. It shows the inadequacy of the research. Mm-hmm. How do we get onto that? I can't remember. <laughs> well, oh, uh, you were talking about muscles and parafunction. Yeah, yeah, I was I was talking about um, how um, how strong is strong, or you know these patients I've got with really large masses that worry me. They they worry me because oh gosh, uh, they've already broken this cusp. They've already got a virgin premolar that's now, and I've got photos on my uh, on my drive of virgin premolars and molars that uh, get vertical root fractures. And right. all these patients have one thing in common, or two couple of things in common. They're parafunctional patients, and they've got significant uh, significantly hypertrophic right. masseter in particular. Sometimes are quite often temporized as well so, so i mean so that i want to switch these muscles off is what i'm trying to say to you andy like i, right. I, I, I to, to let them go and to, to the thought of them running free and wild on those large muscles is it, to me is going to result in a, another vertical root fracture with the so viewpoint let's, I have. let's think about it right first first thing i would say is is it both sides or is it one side because if it's if it's one side there's i would say there's some sort of contact there that they're really working that muscle mm-hmm. and remember with with these Okay, that the masseters work even when there's just anterior tooth contact. Yep. It's actually this anterior temporalis that's not working. And if they're fracturing teeth, I wonder whether that contact, you know, the occlusal contact is on a steep angle and there's no freedom to move around there. They're trying to get that freedom. If you open them up and give them a centrum to work on at the back, mm-hmm. I wonder if that would be different. I wonder if they'd stop bruxing. I wonder if they stop working on, you know, one side of the mouth so they get this massive muscle on one side, that things would start to balance up. In fact, I've had probably, I've got eight or 900 Invisalign patients. I've had four with any sort of TMD issue. Mm-hmm. Bear in mind that I don't treat them if they've got TMD as a general rule. I had one patient come in once. It was in my, early on in my uh, Invisalign days. And she said, I've got this terrible swelling on one side, okay? And I looked at it, and there was nothing wrong in the mouth. And she's basically got this huge masseter 
And she'd been wearing it aligners for about six or eight weeks. So I was looking, I thought, wow, why is that happening? And I, and I saw her flew right over to one side and really clench on it. And she had a bit of a habit. I said, oh, okay. She was a gym bunny type as well. Mm-hmm. And, and she was playing on one side. So it was the time I was working with the Loughborough people. So I showed them pictures and stuff like that. I said, oh, what am I going to do? You know, I've built this muscle up. And they said, oh, if you simply stop, the, stop them working on it, it'll go back to normal. So she learned not to do that, and she was fine. So um, they're working that muscle. But I would, So I wonder if it's both sides, number one. And it immediately tells me they haven't got freedom in centric. You've got contacts on steep, uh, um, steep occlusal planes to, to create that, the forces to do fractures. Now, when we talk about putting the contacts at the back, if I've got a, a tooth that's heavily restored, okay, I'm not going to stick it all on a, a weak tooth. I'm going to bring it on other teeth as well. You've got to apply a little bit of sense here. But um, as a general rule, if you can get two or three good contacts on the posterior teeth with the centrum, mm-hmm. right, that spoon, and they've got freedom to slide up and down on that guide, and that is genuinely a guide is not too steep, in which case it becomes an interference, but you haven't sure. taken it away either, okay, then I find that they, they say, yeah, I'm happy. That's what I do with my splints, and that's how I finish an Invisalign case. How many centrums do we want? I'm happy with, uh, you know, if I can get it on two molars, so that's uh, four, four contacts on each side basically yep yep okay or four contacts that that would be enough if the patient tells me they're happy i'm happy so i'm just trying i'm really trying to make that tangible so if you talk teeth to me so for example if we have um uh, upper left seven and lower left seven um and as the patient's going into sort of a a heavy sort of clench and uh, and uh, in an excursive movement and they're now going to have a non-working side, side guidance or a centrum on the contralateral. Let's say they could have it on the first molar because the, se- the second molar may be heavily restored. So now we've got four teeth touching and potentially two centrums being formed. Is that enough? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm trying to think of the practical aspects of when I'm potentially going to be working with splints and stuff. And, and a lot of people may be thinking, okay, I, you know, I want to I look for these centrums in my own patients. Where, where can I start looking for them? Because... I don't feel a need to go in and alter the patient's teeth too much. I certainly don't want to be building up premolars to big contacts or grinding them down mm-hmm. unless there's a good need to do it because of the weakness of the teeth or the periodontal ligament or something like that. And I come back to what we said at the beginning, you patient-driven in your equilibration. Mm. Just keep going until the patient says that feels comfortable. And I, you don't need to look too hard. And frankly, Jazz, 98% of our colleagues don't look at all, do they? Let's face it. And if you don't look, you haven't got a problem, right? It's so, true. And the patients are okay. Because another thing that comes out of the anthropological evidence is the joint adapts to function, mm-hmm. right? So as long as you get them fairly comfortable, the joint will adapt, they'll come back. In the old days... You know, you, you fit a crown on the NHS, you're really short of time, it's really high, you take the patient, come back in three months if it's still a problem. They never come back. It all adjusts, thank God. And that's what gets us out of trouble. But that makes me less anxious as well, because I've just got to make sure they're comfortable when they leave. And I do 
personally, I do take care with them at the end of Invisalign because I'm known for occlusion in my area and I've got to do it right. The other thing is I work in a practice in Melton Mowbray. There's nine other dentists there. And most of my patients come from their, are their patients. So anything I do is checked every six months. And if there's ever a problem, they're straight back to me, obviously. And I've been there for 10 years now. And I've finished everyone with posterior guided occlusion. And I can think of two patients have ever come back. I see, I see their kids. I see their family. I treat them. They are happy with the occlusion I'm finishing them on. It really is simple. You don't really have to sweat about it. Well, the reason I, res I respect that coming from you is because because of your diverse background in the different schools of thoughts that you've gone to listen to, and you've done probably hundreds, maybe even thousands of, let's say, Michigan's Tanners in the in the in the sort of structural school of thought. I'm sure you've yeah. done all that, and and now yeah. you've made a, a, a switch some years ago to the PGO model. Uh, yeah. Are there still times where you would say, actually, I'm gonna for for, for whatever reason treat this patient in a structural way and, and give them canine guidance? Is that something that happens? Right. So, I, you know, there are times, what, what happens when they come away from the centrum, they then go into canine guidance or group function. Yeah. That's okay. So, um, do you know Sabir Banerjee? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, lovely guy. He, and he teaches on our uh, diploma course. And uh, he teaches a functional approach to occlusion. Well, that's why he's there. And, you know, he's talking about accepting what the patient's got. And it was working with him, I, I suddenly realized, I thought, ah, what people aren't understanding is that the centrum isn't necessarily all of it, but it's the first part of it. It's the essential part of it. Where do they go after that? Well, I wouldn't want them to go on to a heavy contact on a periodontally involved uh, central. I'd want to protect that central by them going on the canine, okay? Yeah. Or if they've got heavily restored premolars or premolars with fractures in, I don't want them going on to that. I'll take them onto the canine. So there is then the next stage from that. But usually dentists only think of that stage. They don't realize there's this initial thing altogether. And that is the essential. That's the bit that's present in nature, mm -hmm. right? We're only trying to reflect what we know is present in nature. And nature does not give everybody dot, 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 stripe, dot, dot, dot. It doesn't. It's we we know that from all our AOB patients that are uh, breathing normally and surviving just fine. Uh, I've got a great collection of AOB photos, uh, weird and wonderful ones. And, uh, and I, do a lo I do load testing on them. I do the, the Rockabado pain map on them. And they've got nothing along oh, yeah. these patients and, and all exactly. that sort. Um, what have they got, though? They probably have a PGO. They definitely have a PGO for sure. But yeah, they have these most likely centrums. But here's the thing, Andy, I've not been looking for these centrums. So, so I'm looking forward exactly. to lockdown finishing. And just, you know, with a fresh viewpoint. Now, it might take, like it took you, Andy, some some goes at it to, you, you know, you followed Ron and listened to him multiple times before you said, okay, I'm going to give this a go. It, it might take me that sort of step. I might start with the splints first, but I'm, you know, I've always never chased canine guidance always. I've always said, yeah. okay, for me, it was important for, for it to be smooth. Everything should be smooth, less resistance yes. uh, and the muscles yes. should be able to, because, because the more resistance you have, uh, if someone's locked in, that's when the muscles really going to overdrive. And you know, that that's my sort of background if you like as well exactly. so it's not too exactly. far away from from what yeah. you're saying at all yeah. um yeah. next question is you're obviously a very eminent speech, speaker in orthodontics especially uh, clear aligners as you to, to talk in the diploma so 
Orthodontics is a full mouth rehab in enamel, let's say. Um, When you're now setting up your ClinCheck, I think you've already given a flavor that actually, no, we don't need to chase um, a class one and what these other orthodontists may call as a compromise, you can now accept as you're going for a functional uh, occlusion. Um, Is it? Is there any tips that you could give to people setting up their ClinChecks to to, okay. to, to get the, the, the right occlusal set up and occlusion at the end? So the first thing you do is you make sure they got a happy, healthy joint before you do anything. And this is exactly what we teach. Now, you know, I teach with Raman Olak. Yes. You know, you know, he came from his uh, school of, occlusion, of orthodontics, which was over in Denmark. And, you know, they weren't so wedded to class one. And uh, we meet up together. And, you know, he talks about functional occlusion. I can remember actually the first time I sat with him to teach occlusion, I was really worried because I was going to come up with all this stuff. And, you know, he couldn't accept it all straight away, but it sort of made sense. And same with Sabia. But one of the things that was so important to me about working with Raman is you think joint first. Okay. So everybody should think joint first. So the first, my first touch with a patient after I've listened to them on what they're interested in, given them a mirror and got built a bit of a relationship with them, said, right, can I just check your jaw joint? Because it's my job to make sure that we give you a healthy functional bite at the end. It's no good having a nice smile if you can't chew properly. And they go, yes. And you know what it is. The more times they say yes, the more they're likely to take up their treatment. It's the lightest touch, and I check their joint function. So that's the first thing I do. So invariably, thank God, 99% of patients have enough opening to chew. They might have a click. They might have a slight deviation, but it's not really a problem. I'm then checking the mouth, and I'm not seeing any significant problems with occlusal wear, mobility, recession, fracture, or anything like that. So that patient's occlusion works for them. So I'm now going to try and maintain that posterior occlusion as much as I can because I'm I'm happy with their occlusion. So I... As a general rule, I do not move second and third molars. I lock them on the on the clean check. Okay, I'll move first molars if I want the width to, to get rid of the deficient buccal corridors. I need the width for space. And as another sort of general rule in terms of um, how I'm planning the case, how much expansion do I want? Well, I go back to the second molars, they come in, they're in generally where the zygomatic arch comes in, and I want a smile that built that fits the face, okay? So if they've got really high cheekbones, wide, and they're wide at the back, then I feel, well, we're going to make it wider at the front as well. So I use the second molars generally as my reference point for, for expansion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anybody who's familiar with the four-sentence prescription that Raman and I developed for Invisalign will know this is, just absolutely comes in there. So I generally not move the second and third molars. And so you're going to maintain your posterior occlusion. You can get intrusion, you know, with the molars, yep. with, the, with the aligners. Which so is why it's so good I, for AOB cases. There you go. Um, what happens then at the end of my alignment, when I'm happy, when the patient's happy with the appearance, I'm then saying, right, we've got to check, make sure your bite's okay. And I'll ask them, does anything feel like it's in the way? Um, It's patient-driven equilibration. Now, the one thing you've got to check with orthodontic patients is their teeth are mobile. Mm. So they'll say, yeah, I can bite okay. But what might be happening is they're biting and the anterior teeth are moving. 
So they're forcing those posterior teeth together. So I put my fingers on the front or I get them to put their fingers on the front and they can feel any of those front teeth moving. I don't want that. So it tells me there's a, smart, a slight posterior open bite, even if I can't see it. The other thing is I'll do is I put a little bit of 80 micron paper in there and get them to clench. And if it catches, then that tells me that's okay as well. I finish about 60% of my Invisalign cases with a DAL appliance because I'm not prepared for them to have any movement of the front teeth. And if I'm honest, I'm not that bothered about having any anterior tooth contact at all. And so if there's any movement or they don't really feel like they can bite really well on their back teeth or that paper um, comes through, I'll get the last lower aligner, trim it distal to the canines and send them away using the upper aligner as a retainer. And usually I say it might take six to eight weeks, but over two or three weeks, those posterior teeth come together. Now, I don't know if the anteriors have intruded, the posteriors have super uh, uh, erupted or whether the condyles changed. I don't know. But they get the back teeth together and then I'm happy. Constantly asking the patient, is it comfortable for you? That's enough. I don't really worry too much about um, what the actual contacts are because in function, they'll be telling me if they're in the way, basically. And if they're not in the way, they can chew what they like. That's all Brilliant. I'm that's that, I really like that answer. So that answers very well. So how, how Andy um, approaches the uh, occlusion, so not moving the second molars and, and third molars, and at the end, uh, using the aligners as a, as a dial appliance, Fantastic. And uh, just a couple more. Qu yes, go well, on. Well, one other point there is crossbites. We get a bit worried about crossbites as well. If I've got like um, molars in crossbite and there's no hit and slide, there's no functional issues, I'll often leave a crossbite. There's nothing to say, you know, you can get good clusal function when the teeth are in crossbite because it's that initial movement that's important, not the fact that it's inside or outside, class one, two, or three. Is that centrum that's important? So I will. I'll often leave a crossbite as well. I tell you, Andy, I, I wish that I can think of a couple of patients where I wish I left a crossbite. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> Why make life complicated? Right? <laughs> it's so true. It takes it takes an awful while sometimes. Uh, one thing I forgot to ask you is how important is for your patients to uh, be in quote unquote centric relation when all this is happening? How important is for the condyle to be uh, the, the the definition of the anteromedial anteromedial part of the part of the condyle to be on the posterior part of the sort of articulate eminence do you right. does it matter what the hell is centric relation right so in our world centric relation is a border position it's not a functional necessarily the functional position they actually function further forward than that in various positions mm -hmm. so the way if you watch you know, I learned by 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 my by by manipulation technique, and at the Panky Institute, they got this fantastic bit of kit which you know shows you exactly where the condyle is and how much force you're supposed to put on and stuff like that. And with some patients, it works really well. Other patients, they're all over the place. So when you watch Ron do it, he's almost he's talking them into it actually, and you will get he will just put a little bit of pressure on their chin. And just get them to open and close gently. And what you're looking for is actually a, a, a muscle-defined position where they want to function. Okay? And if it's a patient with TMD, 
you might not find that straight away because they're all over the place. But in your average, um, you know, Invisalign patient, for instance, and you check in, is there a hit and slide? You just get them nice and quiet. You try and get them to stop thinking about their teeth. And you put a little bit of pressure down. Sometimes I get them to lift their tongue up. And that will just put the condyles in roughly the right place with the teeth not interfering. And then you get them to close together. And the, their function defines the condylar position. That's the point. It's not you pushing them into a position. Now, the people like centric relation because it you can get back to it all the time. Mm-hmm. So, but you lose the point of it. That's not a bad thing to know, but it's not their function. It's a, just the a, a reference point. And it's the back end of that functional um, area, if you like. So what you're trying to say is that Although you're not too hung up on it, you're still sort of uh, when you're uh, maybe equilibrating for uh, for someone to achieve PGO, you are trying well, to approximately get to centric relation. Well, I'm aware of it, but I'm certainly not pushing them back. Mm. And okay. again, I'm, I'm letting them drive me. So generally, if they've had a splint, they, the muscles balance up, okay, start to work properly. The joint gets to where it wants to be. Mm-hmm. And then they take the splint out. You find the teeth are in, not in the right place. So you basically then get them to just remember where it was without the splint and then show me where it touches. And then they'll, they'll tell you, basically. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that feels like it's in the way. Because you've done that reprogramming, you know, of the, of the whole uh, neuromusculature with the splint, as Brilliant. you know. Fantastic. I'm just now checking if I've got any more questions left. Let's see. Okay, so last question then, um, and then I'll uh, offer it to you to put any final points if you'd like to. Uh, so it's a very educational episode. Um, I've I really enjoyed listening to you, Andy. So Thank you. The question is: Some schools of thought suggest that MIP is a pathological position. Okay. So that actually we shouldn't, you know, um, our teeth shouldn't really be touching. So if you look at the and of course, you may argue that the quality of evidence is not good, and that's a very valid point. But the night, I think, I believe it's 1964, the graph paper, which showed um, using the latest technology they had at the time, was that our teeth should only touch for 17 and a half minutes per day. Uh, and okay. even then, uh, not much uh, force. And it's like, like, like we said, those, those fleeting contacts. Whereas you offered uh, um, a theory of actually, we need to have a, a healthy clench, which, which wasn't yeah. mentioned in, in a paper such as that, for example. Yeah. So some yeah. people say that uh, MIP is um, a pathological position. Um, uh, and frankly, the, the, what context there are, contacts there are in MIP is not important in the non-parafunctional patient. Can you explain your views? And then also, um, freedom from centric or freedom in centric um, at maximum force, that, that is something that maybe only happens in parafunction. But I think you've answered that, actually, that healthy, the healthy clench is, is part of health. So I think you may yes. have already answered that. But what, yes. what do you think about that view that MIP is a parafunctional, sorry, is a parafunctional position in itself? So I, to me, it's what's the quality of the contacts when they are in MIP. And if you've got contacts that are on steep inclines and they're locked in, then that's going to create, we certainly know it's going to create uh, problems with the teeth. Okay. We know that those sort of contacts will switch muscles off. And remember, I wonder if that's such an old paper, whether it's coming from the old tripodization uh, philosophy. It's actually, it's actually a commentary on the old tripodization philosophy. It was when, you know, dentists got so into their engineering that they believed that 
a good occlusion was three contacts for every cusp, mm -hmm. right? It locked the patient in. And here's another story. I wasn't there. Ron wasn't there, but Ron knew somebody who was there. And this is the birth of canine guidance, right? <laughs> so there's this high-powered study club. And I can't remember whether it was East Coast or West Coast, but through the, through the 50s and 60s, there was like two battling schools of thought, East Coast and West Coast of the States. And one was about tripodization. And the story goes that this uh, dentist's wife had had her mouth restored by this top-level occlusionist, okay? And she had gold on all her occlusal surfaces, ultimate mouth jewelry, tripodized contacts. And she, within a few days, she's in terrible pain. So what they did was they ground all the contacts down and they left her with canine guidance and she got better. Okay. And so, oh, she got better because of canine guidance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whereas if you took a functional point of view, no, she got better because you gave her some freedom. You it's got fine. rid of those tight mm -hmm. contacts. So I don't know, Jazz, about that, but I wonder whether that's part of the reason for that paper was to say you should not be locking people in. Okay, that's a, yeah, I mean, it, I we'll never know. I mean, I, I've got the paper I can send to you, but essentially it's that, you know, you must have heard that, you know, the 17 half minute chewers that really the teeth should only really touch when swallowing. So it's, it's a difficult, you know, it's a lot of the, the, the background stuff that, that I come from. Uh, I mean, the, the other thing I want to well, ask how actually- How do they measure that? How do they measure that? Right? It's, it's, it's a technique where they use some sort of laser or something. I, I forgot what it was now. It, it's a term. I'll send you the paper. It's, in, it's just yeah, interesting. interesting. And this, this is widely cited, this paper. Even I cite it. You know, uh, and I say, how often should I teach touch together? And something I say to my patients, actually, you're, you know, if you're... So one thing that I think we can both accept is that at rest, it should be lips together, teeth apart. So that's essentially what I teach my patients, uh, you know, that you shouldn't actually be grinding, clenching. That's, that's power function. So, I mean, I think it stems from that as well. I but what do you think about um, PGO? And does it have any similarity to the, uh, you know, 60s and 70s, the balanced occlusion? Is that different to PGO? Well, from what I understand with a balanced occlusion, it was actually, it was a denture occlusion. And they're saying that you should be, and that's why you had the curves of Spay and Wilson. But they well, were applying it to a dentate uh, To patient. a dentate patient. So, um, I'm not aware. I couldn't give you. I couldn't give you a decent answer on that okay. because I don't exactly know what they mean by balanced occlusion. Fine. I mean, I don't think Ron and Henry came up with these ideas themselves necessarily. They were part of. If you, if you, Ron's written a book about Henry Tanner, and if you read about Henry Tanner, you know he started dentistry in 1946, and he was given the job of equilibration in 1946. So you know there were all these competing theories all of the time. So it may well be that this idea of balanced occlusion was around, but it it hasn't been described as fully as Ron and Henry have gone on to do that. And Ron has gone and got the evidence for it as well. And remember, you can't get some of this evidence because the mass didn't exist mm -hmm. in those days. So you can see how these whole ideas have changed. And what we accept today as being obvious isn't obvious then. And we come back, if there's one closing thing that we want to come back to, and you've mentioned it, you, you say it's your worldview, for instance. Well, we're, all, we're talking about theory, okay? Now, the purpose of theory, if you want to get back to scientific science philosophy, the purpose of theory is to explain as succinctly as possible all these different facts that are out there. There are facts out there that are not explained by a particular theory, 
And as the science develops, a new theory comes along that not only explains these facts, but can explain those things as well. And that's the way that science develops. And I think now with PGO, we have a theory. It's not necessarily a perfect description, but it's a better description of the real world than the theory of the structural theory, which explained that, you know, when you put people in canine guidance, they get better. All right. So that's where we're at. And this whole process is replicated throughout science. But as scientists, as scientific science students, we're not taught about all those competing theories. Mm-hmm. We're taught about the one that becomes the truth. If you're in social science, it's all about the competing theories. And as I was teaching this social science for the education course, I recognized that actually this whole thing around occlusion is just the same. And one day, possibly, everybody will see, actually, yeah, this theory, and maybe PGO, explains more things to me and allows me to get on with my life than the old theory does. And then as we develop we'll have more conversations like this, PGO will develop as well and it will develop into something else. But I think personally, we're at a point where we not only have clinical experience, lots of our friends and colleagues not bothering with occlusion and the patients aren't queuing up in terrible pain. We have, uh, we have experiences like we have in terms of what you've done with splints. We have the evidence like Ron's audit. I did audit on his uh, pain patients, for instance, how quickly they got better. We've got all his pictures of his splints. We've got our experiences that we do with, uh, for instance, me finishing off these Invisalign patients over 10 years in this practice where all my patients are being checked every six months by general dentists just like you and me. And we have the dentures that show the effect on how Changing the uh, occlusal planes to match the functional surfaces of the joint makes an absolutely stable denture without implants. And then finally, we have the equation. And all those different bits of of, of, of data facts can be explained by this theory. It explains all of those things. Not one of those bits of evidence is enough to convince anybody that this is the truth. Mm -hmm. But you put them all together... And to me, it explains the truth in a much more complete and simple way than anything else I've come across. And that's basically it. Fantastic. Well, I, I really appreciate the time to, to share about the, the origins of PGO and also look at the, the structural view. You've answered a whole lot of questions that people out there might be thinking. And if anyone wants to um, you know, comment, write in, and uh, I can always send please. the questions to Andy. And, I'll get, and if there's uh, any resources, uh, please, Andy, email to me uh, and I'll yes. put them on uh, as part of the downloads uh, yes. for this episode. Um, I think you've summed it up uh, very beautifully at the end there, almost poetic. But is there anything that you'd like to... You, You've got the microphone now. Well, only mainly to thank you, Jazz, for this opportunity. And to be questioned by you and challenged by you is a, is a joy. And all of your listeners and, and people watching out there, come back with the questions, okay? Mm. Because it makes it, the model needs testing and it needs developing as well. And, and, but what I would ask everybody to do now is to understand that, the way they've seen the world can be seen in a different way. It's like a different set of glasses and start to look at the back of the mouth as well as at the front and start to think about function rather than structure. And let's keep talking and let's help develop less these ideas. It really is, should be simple and, and hopefully will be. I really, really appreciate 
what you're doing here, Jazz. Thank you. No, no, thank, thanks for coming on. Uh, and, you know, the, as I said in, in one of my, every episode, I start with something called a protrusive dental pearl, uh, like a little tip. It could be dentistry, it could be something else. And one of the pearls um, I shared maybe five or six episodes ago was a quote from Malcolm Gladwell. And it was, there's something very unattractive about someone who, who refuses to change their mind. So right. um, I, I think I'm always open to... Right. You know, I'm, I completely accept with my hands up that what I believe now may be different to what I will believe in five years. And I've right. got no problem to change my mind as long as the right. evidence, whether, and, and evidence, like you said, has many arms. There's a whole clinical practice arm of, of evidence uh, as, as well. So um, I think everyone should keep an open mind. Uh, and, I, and I'd like to have discussions like this in the future. Uh, and I think this is how the profession will, will develop in, in, in all the ways. Yes. But I think yes. with occlusion, which lacks a lot of evidence, it'd be great to 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 test PGO more and, and really yes. look at the different models like we are social scientists as well. Yes, exactly. So Occlusion Geeks, thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. I uh, hope you found that really useful. For those who haven't downloaded Dr. Andy Toy's ebook, that was available with part one in the show notes. It's gone on the protrusive.co.uk website. Uh, and again, like always, I really appreciate you listening all the way to the end. Loads of cool speakers coming up. I've got Richard Porter on emotional intelligence. I've got Zach Kara back again, as well as Gorosemi talking both about presenting treatment plans and, and, and a little bit about, you know, the whole case acceptance kind Kind of thing how can we how can we actually get our patients to understand our treatment plans and, and go ahead with what we think is the best thing for them imminently we're coming up one about careers and actually making yourself employable uh, and also uh ama johal and airway which is going to be a massive massive very much a topic that is not talked about enough so really excited to get that content all out to you very soon it does take some hours per episode to actually produce it all and, and get it all edited so uh, stick with me and um, I really look forward to sharing that with you take care